Please pray with me. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? You are majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, a wonder-working God. To you alone belongs all honor, power, and glory. Oh, Father, I praise you for your great faithfulness in giving us another beautiful lesson that underscores who we are in Christ. I praise you because you are our God and we are your beloved people. I ask you now to remove all distractions and lay low every hindrance to planting the truth of your word in our hearts. I ask that you would help me, Lord, to speak your word accurately and passionately proclaim who you are and all you have done are doing and promised to do for your children. This I ask in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What comes to mind when you hear the words, once upon a time? Romance? Dramatic reversals? A happily ever after? A Cinderella story? You know, she lived a wretched existence among the ashes, ridiculed and mistreated by stepmother, a stepmother and her stepsisters. By the end of the story, she's living happily ever after with her dashing Prince Charming. Cinderella's story is the epitome of a dramatic reversal. A reversal much like what we see in Esther chapter 8. In this chapter, God's people go from rags to royal robes, persecution to promise, and certain death to life-giving hope. Great reversals are a running theme in the book of Esther. Esther's once upon a time began as a poor Jewish exile. On her way to her happily ever after, she becomes the queen of the world's mightiest empire. Once a quiet, submissive trophy wife among the king's many wives, Esther now clothes herself in the queen's royal robes to take up the power of her position and defend her people. As she finally aligns herself with God's covenant people, she steps into the role which fulfills Mordecai's prophetic words in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Haman is dead, but his declaration of war against the Jews still stands. They have no happily ever after. But God uses Esther to save his people. He declares a holy war that completely reverses the destiny of the Jews. Because the exiled Jews had no king, God providentially provides Esther to serve as their reigning monarch. He equips her to wage holy war against all who oppose his unfolding plan of redemption and to advance his kingdom purposes. Evil will not prevail. The Jews in Persia will have their happily ever after. And just as he did for Esther, God equips believers to advance his kingdom purposes. 
That's the truth that emerges in Esther chapter 8. God equips believers to advance his kingdom purposes. We will explore that truth in two divisions, holy witness and holy war. Our first division is holy witness, Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him who he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What extraordinary wonderful news. Haman is dead, and Esther, according to Persian culture, is given everything that belonged to Haman. This is what is meant by the house of Haman. Esther comes clean about her ancestry and her relationship to Mordecai. Then Mordecai comes before the king, and he gives him his signet ring, still warm from Haman's finger. This means that Mordecai is elevated to Haman's exalted position, second only to the king. In addition to this incredible reversal, Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. Freed from the shackles of deception, both Esther and Haman can finally act as God's chosen people. God makes sure that they are fully equipped to do so. They are given an extraordinary inheritance, all of Haman's possessions and his position. This points to uh, the great reversal experienced by every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Freed from the shackles of deception, we are transferred from death into eternal life. And as believers, we receive an incomparable inheritance. Believers become heirs to the throne of God, co-heirs with Christ. This means that everything Christ receives by divine right as the natural son of God, we will receive by divine grace as adoptive children of God. Because Christ is God's son, all that the Father has belongs to him. And because we are in Christ, Everything that is Christ is ours as a gift of grace. All things belong to God's children. The most precious being the heritage of being in covenant with God. He will be our God and we will be his people. As heirs to the throne, believers possess many exquisite rights and privileges rights and privileges that far outshine the wealthy house of Haman. Still, for Esther and Mordecai, the king's generosity was overwhelmingly great. They asked for none of it, and they received all of it. They could take it and live happily ever after. But that is not what they wanted. The desire of their hearts was not selfish or personal. Neither wanted to be saved if it meant that their people would perish. So Esther puts her life on the line for her people again. 
verses 3 and 4. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. When Esther fell at the king's feet, weeping and pleading for him to avert Haman's evil plan, she laid down her life for her people. Her actions give us a glimpse of Jesus. He too laid down his life for his people. Like Jesus, Esther lays everything down. The king could very well lose his patience and send her to the gallows. Instead, he once again holds out his golden scepter to Esther, and Esther rises before him to intercede for her people. In verses 5 and 6, her heart for her people is on full display. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if it seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The first thing we see is Esther's submissive approach to the majestic king of the Persian Empire. Once again, she gives him the respect due his exalted position. In doing so, she is a witness to you and me about how we must approach the king of kings. Just as there is a proper approach to this earthly king, there is a proper approach to the king of kings. First, as heirs to the throne, believers have the right and privilege to confidently approach God's throne of grace. Esther did not. Approaching the king's throne uninvited could prove deadly. Second, Believers approach God's throne of grace humbly, recognizing that he is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, we come to his throne repentant and covered in Christ's robe of righteousness. This is the only way that we please the king and find favor in his sight. Third, we come to his throne of grace, trusting him to do what is right in his sight. Like Esther, we surrender to our king's reign and rule. Finally, we come to God's throne of grace to intercede for the lost. When Esther asked the king to revoke Haman's decree to destroy the Jews, she tells him that she cannot bear to see the calamity coming to her people and the destruction of her kindred. You and I are called by God to intercede for those headed for destruction. When was the last time your heart cried out, I cannot bear to see the calamity that is coming to my unsaved loved 
ones. Oh God, how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? When was the last time you fell at the king's feet to weep and plead for the lost? Intercessory prayer for the lost is one way that believers advance God's kingdom purposes. Fall at the feet of the majestic king of kings. Weep, plead, persevere in intercessory prayer. Your loved ones need the only one who can reverse their destiny from eternal death to eternal life. Esther pleads for King Ahasuerus to revoke Haman's death decree. The king, though, is unable to do so because all Persian decrees are irrevocable. For all his bravado in promising to give Esther anything she asked for, he cannot cancel death. Only Jesus Christ could do that, and he did so for us on the cross. What Esther and Mordecai do have is power and authority equal to Haman's. The solution to their dilemma is to write a decree to counteract Haman's. The king gives them permission in verses 7 and 8, saying, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, notice that the king does not give the real reason that Haman was hanged. Not once has he expressed concern for the welfare of the Jews. His only concern is for the welfare and happiness of his bride. In fact, he believes that giving Esther and Mordecai the house of Haman is their happily ever after. Esther does not quibble about the details because the king finally gives her what she needs to save her people. She and Mordecai are free to write down their own irrevocable edict in the king's name, sealed with the king's ring. God's enemies will be dealt with according to his perfect justice. Much like Esther and Mordecai, believers are equipped with his name and the seal of the Holy Spirit. So our first truth is that God equips believers with his name and the seal of the Holy Spirit. How does the name Christian equip you to glorify God? In what ways are you drawing on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to accomplish God's will? When you and I claim the name Christian, we experience a dramatic reversal. We die to our old sinful life and are raised to new life in the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit, not the dictates of the world or of our flesh. 
We cannot do this on our own. We must draw on the Holy Spirit's power. He lives inside every believer, but his power is often quenched by our willful sin and selfish motives. There is a difference between his indwelling presence and his infilling power. To draw on his power, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will not fill a vessel that is stained or filled with sin. Believers humbly approach God with repentant, surrendered, submissive spirits. This is how God's children bow before the majestic King of Kings. When they do, he delights to fill those called by his name and bearing the seal of his spirit with his power. God equips believers with his name and the seal of the Holy Spirit. He then uses them to accomplish his will. Sometimes that involves holy war. Our second division is Holy War, Galatians chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. In verses 9 through 10, the king's scribes were summoned to write Mordecai's orders concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia and also to the Jews. The way that Mordecai wrote this edict puts the Jews on the same level as the rulers of the empire and gives them a distinct identity among the peoples of Persia. Mordecai is quite the clever fellow. Just like Haman, Mordecai writes his edict in the king's name and he seals it with the king's ring. He then sends it out using mounted couriers riding in the king on the king's swift, royally bred horses. Paul's words in Romans 10:15 come to mind. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Mordecai's words were indeed good news for the doomed Jews. The good news is recorded in verses 11 and 12. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month of Adar. Mordecai's decree is the exact, almost word-for-word, word, reversal of Haman's decree. Haman's evil plot against the Jews is turned back on the enemies of the Jews, including women and children. Mordecai declares a holy war. Now, the term holy war sounds like an oxymoron to our modern ears. However, in scripture, God initiates holy war to accomplish his purposes. Normally, Israel's king led God's army and waged holy war according to God's divine commands. 
those commands included the destruction of peoples whose wickedness had reached such proportions that they were threatening the very existence of God's redemptive work through his people. Mordecai's words also echo 1 Samuel 15, 2-3, which record God's instruction for King Saul to lead a holy war to destroy the Amalekites. This command was issued because of the events recorded at the end of Exodus chapter 17. Amalek attacked Israel at Rephidim in both Exodus 17, 14 and Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, God commanded the Israelites to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Israelites were to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Amalekites. In a great reversal, Haman, a descendant of King Agag, unwittingly set up the annihilation of the very people God commanded to annihilate his people. This sets up an even greater reversal. Mordecai's decree will finally accomplish God's command to annihilate the Amalekites. What God says will happen always happens, even if it takes centuries and generations. It is important to note, however, that the events in the book of Esther must be understood within the redemptive historical context of holy war and Jesus's role in it. We read that Mordecai's edict includes the annihilation of women and children, and we're horrified. It is a horrifying thought. But in Esther chapter 9, when the Jews carry out this order, Mordecai's command to plunder the enemy is not obeyed. The Jews do not plunder the enemy. One commentator notes that this points to the fact that this is indeed a holy war. Whenever God sent the Israelites to destroy a people, he instructed them not to take any plunder. If they did, there were grave consequences. King Saul returned from holy war against the Amalekites with plunder, including their king, Agag, and God stripped him of his kingship. At the Battle of Jericho, an Israelite named Achan violated the terms of holy war by taking some of the spoils. He endangered all the Israelites until his sin was uncovered and he and his family were stoned to death. Both the king, king Saul and Achan were Israelites, not enemies of Israel. Karen Jobes clarifies, saying that the essence of holy war in the Old Testament is not about two nations in warfare. Holy war is about God warring against sin and evil on the earth. His people were to live in safety of holiness and righteousness. The existence of God's redeemed people was threatened from the beginning by the rest of the world. This required that those people take both offensive and defensive measures to assure their existence. 
This in turn meant that holy war became necessary whenever their existence was threatened, until in the fullness of time, Jesus, the ultimate divine warrior and king of Israel, was born from and for God's people. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that a copy of Mordecai's decree was displayed publicly everywhere for everyone and that the Jews were to be ready on the appointed day to take vengeance on their enemies. Couriers mounted on swift horses used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Everyone, the author's clear, everyone received Mordecai's edict that reversed the horrors decreed by Haman with the declaration of holy war. This equipped and empowered the Jews to defend themselves and take vengeance on their enemies. In much the same way, God equips believers to advance his kingdom purposes. Today, the church of Jesus replaces the army of Israel. God uses believers to war against sin and death in the world. And the battle has moved from human warfare to the human heart, where sin and evil reside. This is why the Apostle Paul instructs believers to be equipped to put on the full armor of God, the armor of faith, righteousness, and truth in our fight against sin and evil. Every Christian faces an individual battle against the sin and evil in his or her own heart as well as the sin and evil in the world. Ultimate victory in this battle is guaranteed because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. When he rose from the grave, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower believers to live lives marked by holiness, lives that advance God's kingdom purposes. God's equipping of Mordecai is vividly displayed in the first part of verse 15. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Mordecai, once clothed in grief and sackcloth, emerges from the king's presence robed in royalty and crowned with glory. His transformation points to the great and glorious reversal of every believer. Once clothed in the sackcloth of sin, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are robed in the holy wardrobe of his righteousness, crowned with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and filled with great, great joy. Is that what you are wearing right now? If so, God has equipped you with the holy joy, the joy of the Lord. The last part of verse 15 through the first part of verse 17 points us to this truth. As Mordecai emerged in his royal robes, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. 
and in every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Imagine the celebration. The reversal of the fate of the Jews is staggering. Certain death is averted. Haman's edict allowed for no escape for God's people. They had nowhere to run or hide. But Mordecai's edict only condemned those who attacked the Jews and their families. Those who refrained from acts of war against the Jews were not condemned. There was a way of escape. The last half of verse 17, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Many people from other nations, they joined the Jews when they saw the fate of the enemies of the Jews. The message was clear. The way out of judgment was through identification with God's people. The same is true for every sinner ever born. Like Haman's decree, God's decree of death and destruction is irrevocable. It will happen at the final judgment. But like Mordecai's decree, death and destruction has been countered by God's gracious decree that all who believe in his son will not perish under his wrath, but be delivered into eternal life. Jesus the ultimate divine warrior and true king of Israel is the victor in the final holy war against sin and evil. He triumphed over them on the cross. His triumph belongs to every sinner who receives him by grace through faith. God equips believers to advance his kingdom purposes by delivering them from final destruction into eternal life. That's our second truth. God equips believers by delivering them from final destruction into eternal life. The most logical question to ask here is, have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. When did you experience the dramatic reversal from eternal death into eternal life? If you're not sure, you can be. If you're not sure, please, please ask me, ask your small group leader, or ask a pastor at CEPC about a personal relationship with Jesus. It delights our hearts to share the salvation from sin and death found in Christ alone. If you are assured you are a child of God and an heir to the throne, what are you doing to advance God's kingdom purposes? Your once upon a time story as a sinner has been reversed. The happily ever after of eternity, it belongs to you. 
You are an heir to God's throne. And every believer is equipped with incredible rights and privileges. Heirs have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, an intimate relationship with the God of the universe, fellowship with the diverse but united body of Christ, a standing invitation to confidently approach God's throne of grace in prayer, and possession of a bounty of God's rich compassion, protection, and provision. Are you using the gifts he has given you? Or are all your gifts still unwrapped and unused? God equips believers by delivering them from final destruction into eternal life. But he intends for you to advance his kingdom now. Get busy. Tell me, what comes to your mind when you hear the words, once upon a time? A happily ever after? A great reversal? Or holy war? Literal, physical, holy war was once necessary for the survival of the people from whom Messiah would come. Once God's redemptive purposes were realized on the cross of Jesus Christ, the continuing practice of holy war is anything but holy. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 reveals that today our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus also instructs his disciples to battle enemies with the weapon of love. To do this, we must be equipped by God with his Holy Spirit. Then, we must fall in and obey his marching orders to advance his kingdom purposes. Those orders are found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All believers are commanded to go, but they never go alone and they never go ill-equipped. God equips believers to advance his kingdom purposes. And when he does, you and I, we can turn the world upside down and reverse the course of sin and evil. Through his people, God authors great, grand, and glorious reversals that turn grief and sorrow into joyful dancing and changes sackcloth into garments of joy. He fills our mouths with songs of praise to him. Child of God, 
sing a new song, a, a hymn of praise to our God. Then many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. That, my friends, is the best and most beautiful reversal in all of creation, and it leads to the happiest of happily ever afters. Ask God to equip you, then advance his kingdom purposes. Please pray with me. Majestic King, Holy Spirit, Prince of Peace, how we praise you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the extravagant gifts that are ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you for adopting us as your children, for giving us a new identity in Christ, and for making us heirs to the throne. It is all too wonderful to believe, yet we want to believe it, God. We want to wrap our minds around your incredible goodness and generosity. We want to live up to the name Christian and appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit to advance your kingdom. Help us, Lord. Equip us to go and make disciples who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fill us with a burning desire to fill the earth with your glory. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.